I invite you to turn to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Probably you'll see at the top of that page the words, a song of ascents, A-S-C-E-N-T-S. This is the seventh step of 15 of these psalms or songs of ascents as the Jews were ascending up or going up to the temple. We're going to divide the psalm into two sections, the first three verses and the last three verses. We'll call the first three verses a happy beginning. We'll call the last three, four, three verses a triumphant completion. The setting is about 540 years before Christ. Judah has been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. But Persia has defeated the Babylonians, and King Cyrus, under the sovereign direction of the Lord, has given a decree enabling the Jews to return to their land, as well as other people, return to their homeland. And so a group has come back, and as they've come back, they've reflected upon what has happened to them, and this is the setting of the psalm. Two key words in the psalm. Beginning of verse 1, the word restored. The beginning of verse 4, restore, meaning to turn around or to change. This is what happens in conversion. A person turns away from his sinful life, puts his faith and trust in Christ, and is changed around and restored to a position in which he may now love the Lord and serve him. Also, notice the word joy. It appears in verses 2, 5, and 6, and the, verse, and the word glad appears in verse 3. So that theme of joy and gladness runs through this, as well as the idea of restoration. Hence the title of my sermon, A Joyful Restoration. Let me read this psalm to you, and then we'll look at it. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is a joyful restoration a start, at least, for Westminster Presbyterian Church. Certainly, it's not like the return from the exile that the Jews experienced back 500 or so years before Christ. Nevertheless, there are some parallels here, especially this idea that when the Jews returned from Babylon, it was really a very small group. Now, you would think that everybody, all the Jews, would welcome the opportunity to go back to the Promised Land, but only a small number did. Let's begin with this idea of a happy beginning. Verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Indeed, it had been a remarkable return. After 70 years of bondage, here the king of Persia said, you can go back home. And they came back home with his blessing. They came back home to build up the walls of Jerusalem. They came back to lay the foundation of the temple. And they even came and rebuilt the temple. 
all in a very short amount of time. It had been a great deliverance and rescue from their bondage in a foreign land. It's my understanding that no nation, or at least very few nations in ancient history, except the Jews, were able to do all of this and do it so immediately, to come back and rebuild their ancient cities and homes. Notice how it was done. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. When the Lord did it. It was not Moses or somebody like Moses. It was not somebody like Deborah or Gideon, but God himself. Not even really Cyrus was in charge of this because the Lord, in his sovereign good pleasure, had used him as an instrument in his hands to accomplish this. Remember, the promise of the Messiah was through what? The the, uh, tribe of Judah. Judah was the one that had been taken captive to Babylonia. But the Lord always remembered his covenant promise. And he brought them back to continue that process of the plan of salvation. Now you look at the phrase in the English Standard Version. It says, restored the fortunes of Zion. You look at that and think, well, they must have brought back a lot of gold and silver and fine clothes and utensils and and, uh, equipment of that kind. But that's not what the word really means. In fact, some translations, King James Version, New King James, captivity is used. And in the NIV, captives. I can't quite pull these all together except to say that they are rejoicing in their benefits and their blessings that they had formerly being captives, now being back in the land. They come to Zion. This connects with the previous psalm. If you look at Psalm 127, excuse me, 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. But still, this is the, a question. Zion was only a hill on the north side of the city of Jerusalem. Why wasn't the word Jerusalem used here? Why Zion? Because Zion was the location of the temple, the center of worship, the place where God dwelled with his people. And so Zion was used by the psalmist here. When the Lord restored the fortune of Zion, we were like those who dream. Those who dream. Have you ever enjoyed something, a wonderful experience, and jokingly you say, pinch me, I can't believe it, I must be dreaming. We receive a large amount of money or a promotion at work or something, and I, I, it was completely unexpected, I can't believe how great this was. Pinch me if I'm dreaming. Well, that could be one idea here that uh, the people are saying, or the psalmist is saying on behalf of the people, when God revealed his gracious name to us and changed our mournful state, our joy at first seemed like a pleasing dream because his grace to us appeared so great. But there's another interpretation of that phrase because literally in the Hebrew, like those that dream are like those who are restored to health. Like those restored to health. Think of a person, you might think of yourself, who's gone through a serious illness or a surgery or whatever. And one day you realize you're feeling better and you've been restored to health and strength. It's a wonderful feeling to know that you're feeling better again. Well, that could be the idea here. King Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, 16, prayed to the Lord. He said, oh, Lord, restore me to life. 
and let me live. How often have the Jews in Babylon prayed to the Lord, O Lord, restore us to life again. We want to go back home. And now the Lord had done that. They were back in their homeland. Well, either of you, think of Jacob learning that his son Joseph, who he thought was dead, was alive. What a restoration that was for him. Think of the disciples who couldn't quite grasp that Christ was risen from the dead. It took them a while, and then finally they realized it. Think of Peter in Acts chapter 12 being delivered from prison by the angel, and the scripture text tells us that as he went outside of the prison, he thought he was seeing something, a vision or something. He couldn't quite piece it together. This was happening. That was the feeling of these Jews here. And for us, we think of times of when we have been recovered from illness or lifted from hopeless despondency to grateful happiness, a joyful restoration indeed. Moving on to verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Now, generally speaking, Presbyterians have a little difficulty expressing our emotions, outwardly at least. And so we see that phrase and we think, boy, I, I, I don't think I can quite identify with that because I've, I've been brought up in a different way and I'm a Presbyterian, I go to a Presbyterian church and so forth. I read about a, a woman who had a father who was very rigid, very dour countenance. And she said of him, he was a Presbyterian elder. In his long life, he never committed a pleasure. Then there was a political writer who was describing the sober intensity and austerities of a Maryland politician, and he included this phrase, he dresses like a Presbyterian. I don't know what people think of us, if they think that bad of us. If they do, we need to begin changing at least a little bit. But I think you get the idea of the fact that the Jews, more outwardly in their expressions, they probably let it all out. Our mouth was filled with laughter. Almost, it seems like they were laughing so much that they couldn't quite shout for joy, but then finally they did that. And our tongue with shouts of joy. Especially as they ascended to the hill, singing the song, and became getting closer and closer to the temple where they knew that God would meet with them in their worship. Once they had been laughed at, over in Psalm 137, we read, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remember Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required us of songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? But now they're no longer in a foreign land. They're back home. Just something about that word joy. Both the Hebrew and English have the same idea. It's the emotion of delight, well-being, happiness, bliss. We can't make ourselves joyful. We can't buy joy. We can't arrange for it to come into our life. It's not a spurt of feelings like, what a beautiful day this is, or the stock market finally went up. That might give us what we call sort of joy, but that's not the, the, the depth of it. 
It's that which God himself plants deep in our souls regardless of the circumstances. Enabling Paul, for example, to say in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. Deep in his heart, there was joy. And it's nurtured by optimistic anticipation. There's an interesting passage over in Ezra. Ezra was written dealing with the same things that the Psalm 126 is dealing with. The people returned to their land. And in Ezra chapter 3, verses 12, verses 13, excuse me, verses 11 through 13, let me read that to you. They had rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't as great as Solomon's temple. And so there's mixed feelings. Oh, it doesn't look like much, does it? And so we read here, And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. These people literally shouted aloud, and those outside of them heard that. And this leads us then to that uh, second part of verse number 2. Then they said among the nations, now to understand this, the word they does not refer to the Jews refers to the people of the nations. So we can put it this way, and those among the nations, they said. So what did they say? The Lord has done great things for them. They're worshiping their God. They're excited about that. Their God has really done something wonderful for them as we've seen what they've accomplished in such a little bit of time. Great things. What great things? Well, they learned certainly about the deliverance from Egypt and their past history. They had learned of David's deliverance time and time again from King Saul. They had heard about the return from the Babylonian exile. And so in Ezekiel 36, verse 36, we read these words, Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Joy is nurtured by living with such history. Joy is nurtured or should be nurtured by us when we think back the history of the church down through the centuries. And for those of you that know something about our denomination, the way we started out in such little, small, humble circumstances back in 1936, and how greatly the Lord has blessed our little denomination over the years, we should have a sense of joy in our hearts that God has so blessed our church and we can come to a place like Westminster Church and hear the Word of God and study its scriptures and fellowship with people of like precious faith. So this mercy was magnified because it was above all their expectation. And the heathen learned of it. They were amazed. Verse 3 actually repeats the last part of verse 2 as the psalmist responds to what the nations were saying. Boy, the Lord certainly has blessed them, hasn't he? And the psalmist says there in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. He certainly has. There's a big difference between heathen praise and the worship of God's people. 
Notice the psalmist adds a somewhat restrained phrase. We are glad. We are glad. All the more impressive for its simplicity of its expression. A gladness rooted in the knowledge that God had assured them of his never-failing mercies to his covenant. Not an isolated theme in the Bible. There's so much unhappiness in our world. Wouldn't you agree with me, especially during these last couple of months? People are so upset, so sorrowful, there's just no, no joy. We in the church need to let our joy be expressed outwardly as much as we can. It doesn't have to be actual laughter, but maybe a smile on our face if we meet unbeliever people so they can tell us there's something different about them. That's right. We've heard that the Lord has done great things for them. Wonderful testimony to have. So that's the, the happy beginning here in our text. Let's move to the second part of the psalm, which I call a triumphant completion. Beginning of verse 4. Restore our fortunes. There's that word fortunes again. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Despite the laughter and shouts of joy in the first three verses upon the return, we have to remember that a dark cloud still towered over Zion. Remembering their joy at rescue, now the cry is for the Lord to repeat it again. Lord, you did it once, do it again. You restored us once, we need more restoration. We haven't received enough. And we're asking you to do it once more. Because the laughter and joy had to be balanced with the reality of life in Canaan. There was a harsh existence in the land the Babylonians had ravaged earlier. They had knocked the temple down. They destroyed homes. The soil had been undeveloped. Their buildings smashed to pieces. Difficulties and hardships were not abolished simply because they were back. Lord, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. What in the world is that? The Negeb is the area south of Palestine, spreading south toward the Arabian Desert. It's desolate, and it's very, very dry. It's said that the streams, by the way, the streams were the dry riverbeds, called wadis, an Arabic word, Spanish word arroyos, the more English word we're familiar to is, with is dry gulches or washes. Though generally empty, on rare occasions, especially during winter months, only an inch of rain was enough to send torrents of water rushing down those stream beds. Many years ago, uh, my sister and I were at a motor trip with my parents, and we had just left Santa Fe, New Mexico. We were heading toward Colorado. And out of the blue, we looked ahead on the highway, and here's this water rushing across the highway, a little bit of a flash flood. And why my father did it, I have no idea. But he, uh, we had this old, older car, but he plowed on and through. We're going through. And I can remember I was sitting in the back seat, and the water was coming, coming into the, the back of the seat there on the floor. And it was a little scary at that time. But this just came out of nowhere, a whole lot of amount of water. So it doesn't take much in these desert areas when there is a bit of a storm. So what are the people praying for here? 
Lord, it's great you brought us back. We're happy about that. We're joyful about that. But we need something else. We need more restoration. And probably with that reference to the Negeb, they're thinking of their fellow Jews back in Babylon. Remember I mentioned earlier that a lot of the Jews did not come back, only a small number, a little remnant of people. Because the others, they had grown accustomed to Babylon. They were treated reasonably well. They had homes. They had some jobs to do. And uh, they had got used to what was happening here. And perhaps a lot of them even enjoyed the uh, pagan ways of Babylon. And so what they're praying for here especially is, Lord, restore to us more completely what we need, especially bringing back our, our fellow Jews back to our land. A yearning for an abundant reanimating influx of population. Well, that prayer in verse 4 to restore, suddenly it's answered. And it's answered in an unusual way. What the Lord is saying here through the psalmist is that after praying for this restoration, they weren't just to sit back and wait for God to do something. They weren't to sit back idly. There was work to be done, especially sowing, not the needle and thread kind, but the S-O-W kind, the sowing of seeds. But this was easier said than done because it was going to involve tears. Tears. Remember the ground in Palestine was parched. And a sower would go out and look at the ground. It was so dry. But he had to plant seed in some way. Would, would anything happen? It was very discouraging when he looked at that. Yet by hard physical labor, they somehow to take their seeds and to sow them into the ground. To have those seeds become buried into that soil. They would disappear, buried from sight. And then all the sower could do was stand back and wait. See, is it even possible to experience real joy if we know something of tears and sorrows? Well, yes, it is. Jesus himself wept at the grave of Lazarus. The writer of Hebrews says that during his life, Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears. Our Savior, while on earth, shed great tears as he became identified with our sinful predicament and took upon himself our sins. So there they were. All suffering, pain, emptiness, disappointment is pictured by the sowing of the seed. But joy can exist in the midst of suffering, loneliness, and misfortune by the shedding of tears. That's why Paul in prison could say in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then in case they didn't get it, he said, And again I say, Rejoice. Romans 5, 3 through 5, and verse 11, Paul writes these words, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, 
And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. God's no longer angry with us. We are once more at friends, friends with him through Jesus Christ. Many of the uh, hymns in our hymn book are Welsh hymns composed and authored in the land of, the way, of Wales. And those hymns, you can tell, by the way, you can tell a Welsh hymn, if you look at the lower right-hand corner of the hymn, you see the title of the song, and it looks like it's all consonants, no vowels. It looks unpronounceable. But you'll find most of those hymns have come out of the background of sorrows, but they are great songs, expressing God's people Praising God for bringing them through the difficult time of sowing. And so what do we have here in verse 5? Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. First of all, we have weepers, we have workers, the hard work of sowing, and we have waiters, not the kind that go around waiting for you at your restaurant, but those who are actually waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for that moment when they shall come and reap with shouts of joy. Reaping with shouts of joy. And that takes us to verse 6. Notice the change here. It's been plural so far, and now we change to the singular. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. Here our focus is on one particular man who goes out. See him getting up early in the morning, out in the frosty air, trudging along in the hard parts soil. Now he goes because he knows it's time he's got to plant the seed. Scatter the seed. As he does it, the seeds go out, Tears, seeds, and tears, seeds, and tears. It says he is bearing the seed. That's actually a reference to the fact that he would have a, a basket of some kind, or maybe a cloth, and the seeds would be there. And see him out there, that hard, difficult work, throwing the seeds out. Seeds, tears, seeds, tears. More seeds, tears. More seeds, tears. Is anything going to happen? Seeds are kind of laying there. I'm going to have to kind of cover them with soil a little bit. Are they going to take root? Will anything happen? Will I be wiped out financially? Because nothing happens. To the Jews back in Palestine... There must have been many days when their hard work and labor, not only rebuilding the walls and the temple, but just rebuilding their family life, their homes, trudging out an existence in that very difficult place. What was there to look forward to? Well, look what happens. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves 
with him. What are sheaves? I first learned what sheaves were when I was a little boy. My parents had given me an ABC book based upon Bible events. And that's how I learned the A, the B, the C. And the O was for oxen. And the picture that went with it, I still has in my mind, was a cart with a couple of oxen ready to take a load of sheaves away from the field so they could become bread and other food stuffs. And in front of the picture were two men with these huge bundles of the wheat that had been harvested, and they were bound up. And there was a smile on their face, a joy, as they had the result of their harvest. Those time of tears and waiting and wondering. And now the time had come for harvest. Today we have explored a farm scene back about 500 years before Christ in Palestine. It should remind us of the parable of the sower Jesus told in Matthew 13. And there we learned learned that the seed was the word of God. Jesus is the great sower, is he not? As he's pictured here in Psalm 126. He too was a man of tears. We use the term man of sorrows. He accomplished in the sore travail of his soul, in the seed time of affliction, and the ridicule and the attacks upon him, eventually a satisfying harvest of his chosen people. He himself said in John chapter 12, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of, grain of, fall, a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Yes, the seeds that have been sown by the word of God eventually bear fruit in the lives of those who hear that word as the Lord opens up hearts to himself. The harvest is a wonderful time. One day the Lord is going to gather his sheaves, his people, into the great final harvest. In the meantime, we are identified with him. Even in our daily tasks, our daily tasks involve much tears. And difficulties. We look forward to that great time when the Lord will bring us to Himself. So, what is the sowing in our text? Well, it's everything each believer contributes toward the building up of the kingdom and the sheaves, the wholesome fruit of divine benefits which spring up from it, both in this life and the life to come. At this time of our joyful restoration, as we gather here this morning, as another group will come in shortly to worship the Lord as you have done. We realize that days of sowing are still with us. We're not quite fully restored. The Lord's going to call us to times of weeping, pleading, praying, ministering to lost sinners, all the while seeking to realize we're dealing with soil and seed and climate, spiritually speaking. But we look forward to that reaping, don't we? and the completion of our labors. Those labors may be laborious at times. Even the prophet Isaiah had this to say in Isaiah chapter 65, at the end of that verse. 
For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Revelation 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the former things have passed away. And that hope can be yours if your trust is in Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life for us, that man of sorrows, that man of tears. As you hear the word of God explained to you, you hear it preached, or you study it on your own, it takes root in your heart. And if that's you, you know that one day the sowing will be finished, the harvest completed, and those who dwell in Jesus by faith will enjoy our heavenly home with eternal laughter and shouts of joy. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful promise in your word that as we labor for you in this life with all the toil and sweat and tears, that you are with your people and you have promised to bring us to that great time of final harvest. And we shall be freed from our sins and enjoy the glory and blessing of heaven to come. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.